Good morning. That was a really quiet ocean here in Aaron Lexington. Uh, my name is Robert Frazier. I'm the pastor at Grace Chapel Watertown. And uh, it's great to be here this morning with you here in Lexington. Um, I wanted to, give, wanted to give a little shout out to our friends in Wilmington, especially the student ministries over there. Malia and I miss worshiping with you week in and week out. And of course, a word to my friends in Watertown. It's been an amazing six months with you all, learning together how to be the church. And uh, for those of you in the courtyard and on the internet, welcome this morning as well. Many of you probably do not know this, but I am a rabid Red Sox fan, a huge Red Sox fan. Uh, of course, that's no great shock here in the Boston area, but for me, um, it's a little surprising because I, I spent the first 27 years of my life in the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, let me tell you a little bit about how that happened. Garrett and Brett were their names. In sixth grade, they were the first Yankees fans I ever hated. We were rivals in sports and girls in school, and they decided one day to start wearing rounded-brimmed Yankees hats. Now, this was 1993, so rounded brims were in, and uh, I was barely aware of who the Yankees were or how far away New York was from Boise, Idaho, but I knew that I hated the Yankees because <laughs> Brett and Garrett liked them. I found out along the way that there was a group of people who were devoted to hating the Yankees as much as I was. And uh, they, had, they had a team of their own called the Red Sox, and so I became a devout Red Sox follower. <laughs> this was how I found my way to Red Sox Nation as a middle schooler some 2,700 miles from Boston. I knew I was a Red Sox kind of guy because I hated the Yankees the same way you all did. Of course, now my boss is a Yankees fan, um, and so I've learned a begrudging respect for the Yankees. It was actually a part of my employment contract here at Grace Chapel. <laughs> I had to, had to sign that. This sort of a need to define ourselves by the people that we hate or that we're opposed to is a very old, ancient impulse of humanity. And when I look now at Brett and Garrett, we were all incredibly similar. If we hadn't been rivals, we may have actually become lifelong friends. But any time that we're trying to determine our place or position in a group, or as a group determining who we are, what we do is we start to look around and see the differences between us and others, ourselves, our groups, and other groups. And then we find reasons to demonstrate how great we are in comparison to others and other groups. This is the foundation for a word that has been used a lot the last 10 years, tribalism, or being a tribe. Lifting my people over your people. Differentiating ourselves from the other so we can find an identity. Of course, we all do that in middle school because we, we are desperate to find out who we are, and if, if I don't like you, that must mean something about me. Is it possible for us here that there are groups and people in our lives that we hate? Who are those people that you block in your social media feed because of their political posts or their, their funny cat videos? <laughs> for you, is it the terrorists, the liberals, the tea partiers, or the fundamentalists? Is it the politicians, the pagans, the Mormon mommy bloggers, the devil worshipers, Vladimir Putin, or the one percenters? Is it the homeless guys or the welfare moms that really get your blood boiling? Is it the rich, the powerful, the elite, the Yankees fans, the Giants fans, the Lakers fans, or just sports fans and sports metaphors in general that you hate? 
These are all tribes, which brings up the question, could tribalism be keeping us, God's people, from answering the call of God on our lives? Just like it did for Jonah. We see this sort of tribalism in the Jonah story. Jonah hates the Assyrians enough to die rather than go to Nineveh. Brian, the last two weeks, took us through Jonah, looking at his call as an individual, what God was doing to get him there, to go and do the mission that God had called him to. We saw in chapter one Jonah's call and running away to Tarshish when we learned that when we run from God, we put ourselves and others at risk. But God will not sure easily give up on his purpose. We learned in chapter two through Jonah's prayer in the belly of the great fish that God wants our hearts more than he wants our help. So in love, he'll pursue us even to the deepest place. In chapter three this week, we'll see where Jonah finally gets to Nineveh and does the work that God has called him to. And an amazing thing happens. The Ninevites respond in a huge way. To get there today, we'll touch on three words, and the first is tribe. Now, Seth Godin has this to say about tribes. A tribe is a group of people connected to one another, connected to a leader, and connected to an idea. For millions of years, human beings have been a part of one tribe or another. A group needs only two things to be a tribe, a shared interest and a way to communicate. When you want to understand tribes and why we organize ourselves as tribes, one way to do that is to go back to the beginning of that tribe and that can shed some light on why the group behaves the way that it does. When we look at Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham about making him into a great nation in Israel, we find something interesting. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Just like with most things, the descendants of Abraham read only half of the promise. They liked the idea of being made into a great nation, wouldn't we all? They liked the idea that God would bless them, but the story of the Old Testament is littered with examples of God judging Israel for not remembering the second half of God's promise to them. Look again. I will make you a great nation, and you will be a great blessing. And all peoples on earth, not just Israelites, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Jonah and the people of Israel wrongly thought that God was blessing the descendants of Abraham, their tribe, because they in themselves were something special. It was always God working in them that made them special, not what they did for God or who they were just existing by themselves. A big part of the reason that Jonah wanted to run away from Nineveh and God's calling was that he absolutely hated the Ninevites. He could not imagine a reality where those people could be loved by his God. He also didn't realize that Israel existed because God cared about the nations not just the Israelites. There was an end game at play. In the history of the Jews, we read through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings that God favored the Israelites as they were established in the land of Canaan. This was a special time for God to carve out a place for his people to thrive and exist. But it wasn't just for the Israelites to have a nice piece of land to sit on and enjoy the fruits of God's labor. 
It was so that God's redemptive story would have a place in faithful people so that all peoples on earth would be blessed through them. Eventually, through the work of Jesus on the cross, making a way for all of us to be reconciled to God. God's purpose for Jonah and Israel was to bless the nation. So let's pick it up in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, when Dave was reading it a little earlier, I think he gave too much emphasis. What I'm imagining is that Jonah's walking through the city, and we could tell he really doesn't care about the Ninevites. So he's like, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days. Like he's, you know, just kind of barely, and maybe it was even more monotone than that. It's, it's a funny thing. You can almost hear the lack of enthusiasm in Jonah's voice in the text. He was not what you'd call an ideal spokesperson. Just one sentence, really. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But God didn't need someone who was eloquent of speech. God had a plan for Nineveh that wasn't going to be thwarted by Jonah not coming through. Even when Jonah gives in and finally goes to Nineveh, we see he does the bare minimum. He makes no impassioned appeal for the people of the city. It may seem to us today a universal truth that God does not discriminate against people based on their nationality or their race. But this was a revelation in the ancient world. It was, in fact, the first time in the history of the world or the Bible that we can see that God sent one of his prophets to a Gentile city with the express purpose to save them from destruction. This had never happened before that we know of. God did not share in Jonah's fear, hatred, or loathing for the Ninevites. It seems pretty clear that God actually really cared about those people. Just like I did with Garrett and Brett in sixth grade, seeing my Red Sox as over and above their Yankees, this is a universal truth, (laughs) Jonah saw his Israeliteness as over and against the Gentiles. He was a racist and a nativist in the most dangerous way. He says three times throughout the story that Jonah would rather die than see the people of Nineveh saved from destruction. And God would have none of it. He marched Jonah right up to the city gate to the edge of Nineveh. Why was God so worried about the Ninevites? Why did he go such extraordinary lengths to see them saved? Especially when the Ninevites were, without question, an evil people, opposed to the goodness of God, full of violence, warring, and conquering neighboring cities and nations. The Ninevites were, without question, an enemy of God. God Like any good parent, when it comes to his creation, his kids that have run away from home, we all go out and we hurt each other. We assault each other. We pillage each other. I don't don't know if we pillage as much anymore, but we, we do things like that. We live dishonestly. We ignore the widows and orphans among us. We steal, and we don't care about our Heavenly Father one bit as his creation. So how is God to deal with us? What's he to do with his creation that's run away and... We as his creation are doing this thing that's hurting his kids that he cares about. One of the most significant voices in theology in the 21st century has been a guy named Miroslav Volf, a professor at Yale who grew up in the former Yugoslavia and lived through the wars and atrocities of the Serbian-Croatian conflict. In dealing with the aftermath 
and the brutal civil war where everyone is at least complicit in crimes against humanity, if not directly involved, and there's a country filled with victims of these crimes, what do you do? Do you send millions to the Hague to be tried as war criminals? Do you give opportunities for vigilantes to exact justice from their neighbors who did these atrocities? How do you deal with a country filled with both the perpetrators and the victims of war crimes when many are both? Meditating on this dilemma, Wolf writes one of the most, I think, powerful books on the gospel that I've ever read called Exclusion and Embrace. In it, he demonstrates that God came both to sympathize with the plight of the oppressed the poor and the victim, as well as to die in the place of each perpetrator of the oppression. None of us are without fault. All of us are perpetrators and victims of these crimes against God's creation, his kids. There's no one without sin, not needing Christ to die in their place. And there's none of us who haven't walked with the wounds of living in a world where God's kids hurt each other. But God is not the God of just the victims of the evil that humans do in the world. God loves and cares about the perpetrators of evil. He wants them to be redeemed by Christ's work on the cross. He wants a relationship with those that are far from him, hurting themselves and others. We observe a nearly impossible dilemma for humanity. Either destroy all the evildoers in an act of justice, or seek the redemption of those who do the evil. There's one way, this is one way to deal with the problem of evil from an apologetic standpoint. God cares deeply about the evil that's done in the world. He'd like to get rid of it, but to get rid of it would mean destroying the kids that he made as the objects of his affection. The kids that he cares about more than anything, us. And so what's he to do? That is what Jonah did not understand. That the Ninevites were the people that God deeply cared about the same way he cared about the descendants of Abraham. Do we really understand this today as Christ followers? Or do we have an us versus them mentality? There are the good people and the bad people. No, I didn't say bad people. The, the bad people over there. There's, I'm a good person and they are the bad people. Not the balcony, but them out there. <laughs> they are the bad people. Is this keeping us from living on mission with God? Because we think that those other people that are far from God deserve to be far from him? Are we like Jonah, doing everything we can to keep from going to those other tribes and inviting them to consider faith in God so that they might be saved? It shows up in our response to God's grace towards our enemies, our response when God is blessing those other tribes that we hate. You know that day when the Yankees win the World Series and you turn the TV off and you say a little prayer saying, God, if it falls in the ocean, it falls in the ocean, who cares? New York can, you know, like all, the, all those feelings of just, <laughs> you know, anger that just well up in you. We all have those feelings. Uh, at least I do. I hope you guys do too. <laughs> yeah. In spite of Jonah's lackluster delivery of his message, a revival breaks out in the city. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The second word that I want to touch on today is city, because we can see at the center of this text is the term, that great city. Now, the types of questions that we bring to the Bible will determine what we get out of them. 
any serious study of a text or a story in the Bible, it, the questions that you bring to it are going to determine what you see. So when we look at the first verse and the last verse of this story, the question that we want to ask is, what does this story or passage tell me about God? This is the central theological question. The Bible is God's way of showing us himself. And so every story we're asking this question first. What does this passage or story tell me about God? So when you look at the first verse and the last verse of the book of Jonah, you see the same phrase repeated. The great city and that great city. And right here in the middle of the book, at the beginning of chapter 3, we see the same phrase repeated. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, repetition and framing the beginning, middle, and end of the story with the same phrase was one way that the biblical writers could show us what they wanted to emphasize in the story, what they want you to see. And so if we take nothing else away from the story, when we take this sort of framework to it, we see God cares deeply about Nineveh, that great city. Why is this important? Why is Jonah about cities? We spent some time last fall talking about God's heart for the city in our On Mission series. And this is a perfect place for us to look a little more closely at God's heart for the city. Cities are important to God because God, not because God likes urban sprawl or annoying traffic congestion. It's not because cities are the economic engines of society or because they have great sports teams. Cities are important because they're filled with God's creatures, his kids. Many of those kids are lost, but cities matter because people matter to God. Just the last three years, we've, seen, we've, we've been witness to a turning point in the history of the world. Now, for the first time, a majority of people in the world live in cities. This has been true of America for over 100 years. We've been, had more people that lived in cities that lived in rural areas. We're a nation of cities. It's no longer that the lost only live in the villages of the Amazon forest or the mountains of Indonesia, but the lost increasingly live in vast hordes in great global cities. If we want to see the world reach for Christ, it will start with the great cities of the world because this has been the pattern. Movements start from cities because cities are where people are. Nineveh was the up-and-coming city of the world at the time of Jonah, and God cared enough to send Jonah no matter what it took. We see here that cities matter to God. One Christian leader put it this way. This much is clear. The cities are where the people are. In the course of less than 300 years, our world will have shifted from one in which only 3% of people live in cities to one in which 80% are resident in urban areas. If the Christian church does not learn new modes of urban ministry, we'll find ourselves on the outside looking in. The gospel of Jesus Christ must call a new generation of committed Christians into these teeming cities. As these numbers make clear, there really is no choice. If we care about the things that God cares about, we can see here in Jonah, some 3,000 years ago, that God cared about cities before it was hip to care about cities. He's been caring about cities for a long time. Today, the world is made up of great cities like ours here in Boston, a metro area of nearly 4.5 million people, larger than any ancient city by a magnitude of three. What does this mean for us as Grace Chapel, as residents of this global city? First, it means that if we want to be on mission with God, Christians have to go where people are. Living on mission means that God came to us 
that like God came to us in the form of Jesus, we are to go to the world with the message of Jesus. Second, it means that we should expect God to work in big ways like he did in Nineveh because that is what he wants to do, bring the whole world into a restored relationship with himself and creation. The last word I want to talk about today, touch on briefly, is revival. We see in verse 10 God's response to the whole city revival that takes place. When God saw what they did and how they turned from his evil ways, he repented and did not bring on them the the destruction he had threatened. This is not a permanent change in, in Nineveh. Assyria, in the near future, right after this, will return to its evil and violent ways. And for those of you who know your history, you know that the evil of the Assyrian Empire will eventually lead it to be dismantled by the nations that it conquered, all of which is foretold in Isaiah 7 through 10. The story of Jonah and Nineveh is interesting because the change in the city is so astoundingly complete. Look at the progression in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Then when the news reached the king, he was transformed and made a decree to everyone, from the cattle to the king, that they would fast and repent. Now, I don't, the animals, they're innocent victims in this. Let's be honest. <laughs> they didn't do anything, and, and they're stuck not eating because of the Ninevites. But there's this, there's this wholesale change in the city. This was a miracle that's not seen anywhere else in all of Scripture. One commentator describes it as a singularly whole repentance, mass conversion to belief in the God of the Jews. We don't even see in the history of Israel when God calls them to repentance anywhere near this level of wholesale change. God was doing a big thing. And Nineveh at that moment looked much more like God's people than the prophet that God sent to them. Jonah's faith in God is put to shame in comparison to the faith of the Ninevites. God came through for even that other tribe, those that Jonah hated. This is the lesson for us today about what this story is telling us about our God. He loves even our enemies. Just like in Romans 5 when Paul tells us that God loved us even when we were his enemies. The neighborhood that I grew up in uh, was on the, the outskirts of a, of a western suburb, close enough to the city to enjoy access to entertainment and culture, shopping, education. It was Boise, Idaho, but it had some things. Um, it was quiet enough. Uh, everyone was the same socioeconomic status, the same race, mostly the same religions. It was safe with good schools and neighbors that knew each other. Now, I am not a city person. I, I really kind of hate living in the city. I hate parking in the city. I hate driving in the city. I hate housing prices in the city. I hate the small stores and the high grocery prices and the crime. I hate that I could drive an hour in any direction and still be surrounded by people. <laughs> and if it were during rush hour, I would have only moved five hours in, in that hour of driving. When I imagine my dream life. It's in a semi-rural kind of edge of the city suburbs. That sounds really nice to me. But this is not the trajectory that my life is on. When we first moved to Massachusetts, Malia and I, we moved to the far north shore up in the Hamilton Wenham area. Rural, pastoral, peaceful, scenic drives up the coast on the weekends. There's more horses in the county than there are people. Then we felt the Lord leading us to move to Reading. 
on the edge of the city, firmly suburbia, but an idyllic town, ranked fifth best suburb in America when we moved there, I felt at home. We had great community. We got to serve as a part of the Grace Chapel Wilmington family and reach out to teens with Crew High School in Reading. And then this last year, at the prompting of God and Richard Rhodes, our campus pastor, pastor, uh, we saw this opportunity to live on mission with God in Watertown, a virtual mile from Boston proper. Enough city to have all the drawbacks and the high housing prices. As we watched the manhunt last April after the marathon bombings, and Malia and I prayed for Watertown as we learned about the town itself and then heard the story about how God was working in the community church of Watertown to partner with Grace Chapel to reach out to that part of the city. We knew that God was calling us to be a part of that story. Malia and I firmly believe that's where we're supposed to be because God cares for the city. He cares for Watertown and the surrounding neighborhoods, an area of the city that's underserved by gospel churches. He cares that less than 5% of people in the Boston area will darken the doors of an evangelical church this year. God cares for the 300,000 college and graduate students that come to our city each year to study and live, most of whom have not heard the gospel. I don't love living in the city, but I'm learning to love the city because God cares about the people there. And he puts them in an amazingly compact place for us to reach out with the love of Christ, to cross boundaries and borders, tribes and town lines. If it's possible, maybe even some of us in this room don't feel as strongly as anyone does, as Jonah does about the Ninevites or as I feel towards the Yankees, that's possible. It's not likely that many of us would run to Siberia if God called us to the city to reach the lost masses with the message that God loves them. But most of us have a significant indifference towards the lost. We don't hate them actively. We don't work towards their destruction. But we do sit on the sidelines and watch as they move towards an eternity separated from God. There's this video blog post by Penn Gillette of the illusion duo Penn and Teller. He's an avowed, outspoken atheist. And uh, he tells this story that after a show one day, a man who was part of the Gideons came up to him. And he walked up and he, he said, hello, my name is whatever his name was. I think it was Kenny. <laughs> and he said, hello, I had a great time at your show tonight. It was, it was a delight. And he paused for a second and said, I, I want to give you this Bible because I care about you. And I, I hope that you read it and I hope that it means something to you too. And Penn Jillette is telling this story on this video blog. And he says... He basically goes on a rant against Christians who don't share their faith um, as an avowed atheist. He says, if you really believe that I'm going to hell if I do not believe in Jesus, and do not tell everyone that you know about it, you may be one of the worst people in the world. How much do you have to hate someone to not share with them how to avoid hell and have eternal life? How much do you have to hate someone? That's me. I, I care very little for the people around me. I spend most of my time consumed with myself. I know many of us do. And uh, Penn is just poking his finger in our chest and saying, if you really believe it, if it really means something to you, how much do you have to hate someone to not share it with them? 
Jonah said, I'd rather die three times than see Nineveh saved from destruction. He really hated them. Ultimately, God cares deeply about the lost. Every person on earth was worth sending his son Jesus to save and suffer in their place. From the untouchables of Calcutta to the president of the United States, everyone. Do you care about the people that God cares about? That list that I mentioned at the beginning, that group that really gets your goat, the one that really irks you, do you care about them? Who's that tribe you can't stand? God cares for that person. Who are those political people that you want to stop posting on your Facebook newsfeed? Who are those people that you could care less about, who you have yet to share your hope in Christ with? God loves them all. And like a lovesick father, he's waiting with arms wide open and working towards reconciling with the lost. And if we want to be on mission with God, it will look like starting to love those who are the most unlovable. We touched on three words today, tribe, city, and revival. We see clearly in Jonah, God wants us to move beyond our petty tribalism. He wants to reach cities and to see a comprehensive revival that changes cities from top to bottom. God wants our partnership in reaching the world with the hope of the gospel because he cares deeply for the lost in these great cities of ours. So that leaves the question for us. Where is God calling? Let's pray. Lord God, we, we confess together that we do not have your eyes or your heart, that we harbor hate and malice and anger towards people who have wronged us, towards people that we don't like, that don't espouse our values, people who are other and out there and over there. Lord God, we need you to give us a new heart, to take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that's filled with your love and your passion for the lost and for the world. Don't let our tribalism like Jonah keep us from being a part of what you're up to. Give us your eyes to see and love and care for those who are in our lives. God, don't, love, don't let our indifference keep you from working in our friends' lives. Give us passion and courage to step out in faith. God, we love you and thank you for this time. In your name, amen.